Well, today on the Disruptive Voices of the Pacific, we have a very special guest with us um, all the way in Papua New Guinea. Her name is Hannah Joku, and um, Hannah is a survivor of abuse, and she has taken her abuser to court and won. So today we want to have a bit of a chat about uh, her journey and particularly her fight for justice, which is so important uh, in the battle against seeing an end to violence against women. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I think you're our first Papua New Guinea woman on this podcast. A lot of our stories have been focused around Fiji, um, but obviously we know that this issue is all around the Pacific Islands. It's an epidemic. It's a big problem. And you have been using your voice to speak out. But before we get into your story, just tell us maybe a little bit about your background um, and who you are, just to help give us a bit of context. Sure. So I'm... From uh, Central Province here in Papua New Guinea, my mother's from Central Province and my father is West Papuan. He came to Papua New Guinea as a refugee when he was 12 and uh, went on to become one of the country's leading investigative journalists. So both my parents worked in media, my mother in the administration side. So I grew up in uh, newsrooms. And from the age of seven, I knew what I wanted to do. So I would tag along with my dad to the post courier and sleep under his desk. So at midnight, I'd get to wake up and see the paper go to print. Mm. And um, when I was in year 10, I joined a local broadcasting network here, MTV. And I worked through year 10, 11, and 12 and walked in and asked the GM for a job. He said he didn't hire kids. So I sat and said, the only way you'll remove me from your office is if you hire me or you call security. So I got hired, thankfully. And, um, yes, yeah, so I never studied journalism. It was a passion, and I worked my way up. So I've worked with the three main networks here, NBC, MTV, and recently, most recently TV1. Um, so I'm a radio and television um, journalist, broadcaster, uh, producer, and presenter. And so I did a lot of work in the space of not just news, but current affairs and documentaries and mostly centered all here. So um, I'm proud of that. But in 2018, while working for um, the network was when, when my incident happened. So I realized very early I have a platform to use and I'd like to use it. Um, I have five, I'm one of five siblings. Um, I lost one sister in a car accident and my other three siblings all live in Jayapura. So I'm the only one in my immediate family that lives here in Port Mosby. Wow. Well, it's not intimidating at all having to interview a journalist today. But you're you're very well known. You're um, because of your profile in journalism, you're a face that's well known around Papua New Guinea. Um, so to be able to speak out on these issues is um, powerful, being such a well-known figure as well. So well done to you because so often we just want to hide these issues. Um, so it was in 2018 with a um, a past partner of yours when you were were abused. Was, was it just a once-off incident or what had things led up to that point for you? So... You know, with a narcissist, they're very good at hiding this behavior. They hide it very well from from family, from friends. And so nobody noticed, I guess, you know, and they have a charming personality that you don't see it coming. And it started with the gaslighting. It started with the emotional abuse, very subtle at first. 
And then one day out of the blue um, was when I got punched in the face for something that wasn't even my fault. And I realized, okay, I, yes, I grew up in a violent home, but that was why I made the decision I would never be in a violent relationship. And um, the, the person then proceeded not to get me medical attention, but to drive around Port Mosby and continue pummeling my face. And I was able to convince him I needed some medical help. So when he drove to the hospital and parked, I jumped out of the vehicle and ran for help. Mm. Um, it went downhill from there. You know, <clears throat> I'm the thing with relationships is a part of you will always try to think you can fix it or fix the person. And when you have, you know, invested emotionally, it's just normal human behavior. I don't think it's something to be embarrassed about, to talk about. So I had no hesitation in wanting to be public about it because um, three things happened and I went public, number one, because of my safety. I've had to leave the country twice and I've moved um, house residence four times, five times. And so I needed to do it for my safety. Second reason was as media, I saw a gap in information that people understood and were getting about basic things, the constitution, what are rights. Up until that point, I hadn't read the constitution. You know, what are my basic rights? I have access to people that everyday public don't. So I, it's, it is my duty to have to question and challenge these people that sit in these positions. And thirdly, um, I wanted to document it so that I could show the relevant government, hey, this is a case in its entirety, fix it. You can see the gaps and the loopholes. Yeah. And so those three things are, are what um, pushed me to want to do this. Yeah, wonderful. Now, he also was a public figure, uh, having run for the national elections in 2017. He he wasn't successful in that, was he? So um, you're both pretty... He wasn't, yeah. But he's obviously a powerful man in a position of power, um, well-recognised, well-known. And so it, it always does boggle my mind when um, I talk to victims who have already been through abuse and and whatnot, and then their life is still in danger. They're still getting death threats. Why? So who was threatening you and why? So the death threat started with him, and then he graciously handed my contact details out to everybody else, and I was getting death threats from random people via Facebook, WhatsApp, text messages. Um, it's with, you know, with our Papua New Guinea and Melanesian culture, we're very much one-talk-based, and and. I find I found he was a bully, but he would be a bully with in in and and had that strength in when he was in a group. So mm. you know they find that they do it in numbers, never on their own. Yeah. And you know you have pride, you have ego, you have this expectation in our culture that women can't have a voice, we can't challenge anything, we can't, we will never be equal. And I wasn't raised that way. I was raised to have a voice. I was raised to use it. You know, no matter how difficult a situation you stand and if you're standing for the right thing and you stand alone, so be it. That's how I grew up. And um, because my mother also is part Guaylala and they're a minority group. So the Guaylala people are known for being very violent and aggressive out of all of the central people. And so usually when there's altercations or ethnic clashes in the city, it's the Guaylalas versus another ethnic group, often from the highlands. And so I think that stubbornness and strong will comes from there. And um, 
the the abuse didn't wasn't just a one off it it started with the emotional abuse and then the physical started um so the first time i flew out of the country my father took got me a ticket home and said he's going to kill you and i actually believed i could fix the relationship so i came back with the second incident i argued with my dad that this isn't right i'm not going to live in fear um I need to go back and fight for justice. So against my parents' wishes, I came back. And I came back because I wanted to face this head on. If I run now, I told myself, you know, even though I'm from here, I'm going to forever be running and looking over my shoulder. And I'm not willing to live like that and compromise my life or that of my children. And it, it's not normal. The violence that's been allowed to be normalized um, isn't, it isn't right and isn't fair. And I don't think that anyone has a right to reach the peace of any other human being. So Absolutely. I came back. Yeah, well done. Um, you raised a really good point. And as I said to you before we started recording, um, he's picked the wrong woman because you've grown up in a family where you were given a voice, but so many young women, um, and I guess just from all my experience in Fiji, uh, you don't have a voice. It's, you know, you're you're seen and not heard You've got to respect your elders no matter what they do and what they say. So how important, and just as a mother of five, how vitally important is it that we raise daughters that can't even respectfully disagree with their parents but have a voice? Oh, it's super important. Um, I, my daughter, my eldest daughter is 23, and so she's at that age where she is already experiencing relationships, and it's so important to me to know that I am going to change the system any which way I can to influence change because I don't, I'm not comfortable right now with the Papua New Guinea I'm living in. Um, our violence has escalated to alarming levels and it frightens me. That it, and when I do the advocacy or I have my public speaking sessions, I focus on that. You as a young woman need to understand your rights. You're not obligated to any human being, even if it's just at the dating stage and then we as uh, Papua New Guinea and sometimes we automatically embrace that and give them this couple image you know and little it starts with the little things so if you have a family event and then your family says oh hey dear why don't you serve him his food to me no he can get up and do it himself he's got arms and legs to do it and I think when that kind of behavior starts and our daughter's and and you know these young men will see that your family is expecting it then he continues that and thinks it's okay to treat you however he wants because it, he can see the family has accepted it. So there are some norms that um, I think I was the one child that's always questioned my parents on a lot of things. Um, things are done this way. I would see my siblings would often just go along with it, but I wanted to know why. Why do we do it this way? Why can't we do it another way? Why is it accepted? Why are they doing that? Or mm -hmm. And I think the um, culture clash with my parents played a big role because uh, my first trip home to Jayapura was when I was eight. Didn't know the language, didn't understand why they used squat toilets, didn't, didn't like the food. And so very early on, I have a very, very blended family on both sides. So it was growing up around a lot of differences that for me, um, you couldn't treat anyone different. My Both sets of grandparents raised a lot of people in their homes who were not related to us by blood, but we always just had other people there that they always helped. And I think it was normal for me to have that respect as human beings. I've always looked at people as human beings first, you know, yeah. not by gender or not by race or ethnicity. 
Exactly, exactly. And that's how God looks at us all as well. So let's come to your um, court case. Um, you know, this incident happened 2018 and it wasn't until he wasn't charged, well, he wasn't um, put away until just this year, 2023. So that's a five-year journey. Um, you charged him for one count of rape, two counts of grievous bodily harm. Um, so walk us through a bit of that. How hard was it to, um, yeah, bring justice? So when I reported it, um, because I had I, I travelled a lot for work, my colleagues didn't know I was in a safe house at one stage because it was normal for them to see me come with a suitcase, mm-hmm. uh, a carry-on case. And so they just assumed I was going to be going somewhere. I didn't tell anybody initially. I was petrified because he was already threatening me and my family. And I didn't say anything. And I was trying to just think on my feet because the harassment and threats were coming. I also couldn't afford to lose my job because I've chosen to be a single parent. Um, I am the sole bread, breadwinner. And so one day I it, it just got overwhelming. So I went to a friend's house and sat on his uh, veranda and just cried. And I said, I can't do this. And he had been my personal trainer and he, um, he said, I, I know and I can comfortably tell you that of all the people I've ever trained, you have, your mental capacity is somewhere else. You know how to put yourself in a different place. So you need to fight this. So what are your strengths? So, you know, in between tears and I'm like, uh, I don't know, media? He said, yeah. So what do you do with it? He said, you use it. You use your strengths. That's how you fight back. You put the spotlight on this case and you keep it there. You have to use your voice. And you're just overwhelmed right now with what's happening. But trust me, the threats will stop. And it did. When I went public, it stopped automatically, like somebody flicked a switch. And so understanding what the strengths are and holding on to that power and using it, I realized this is why I'm in media. This is my purpose. Um, The day that the rape had happened had been months before. And that isn't something I ever reported because I was just fearful and still sitting in that place that, oh, no, he he might change. Or, you know, I, I can't afford to rock the boat with anything because we had both um, very public profiles. And so when I saw that he when the second incident happened and I reported it, um, it would be month, maybe two months later, I think, in November that I woke up one day and said, he's not going to change. And if you want to fight this, you need to hold him responsible for everything he's done. So I updated my statement and went back to the police and I included the rape incident. So Mm -hmm. he got called down to the station and got read the new charges. Um, The public prosecutor had read my statement and advised the police it's strong enough, you know, we, we don't need any other medical evidence. This is so detailed. You can go ahead and, you know, upgrade the charges. So the charges got upgraded. And um, it fell through the gaps at one stage. I didn't hear from anybody for two or three months. So I went back to them and I said, hey, uh, what's happening? I've not heard anything. I also realized that I had to keep my communication clear with everyone. So the investigating officer, the inspector who was um, given my case, 
the Metropolitan Superintendent, the Police Commissioner, the Police Minister, the Justice Minister, the Attorney General. I kept my, the State Prosecutor. I kept lines of communication with everybody that came in contact with my case at one stage. And I told everybody, um, if I find out any information is incorrect, I am going to verify and check it myself. If I find out you're giving me the runaround, I'm going to keep coming back. And if my case falls in the, through the system anyway, I'm going to re-report it. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm here to win this and you do your job. And by the way, I'm documenting everything. So this is going to be updated on social media so the country can follow and learn from it. And it did, I guess, in a way, hold them accountable to have to do the right thing because each right. of the process I shared was just public. Yeah. And I didn't realize until messages were coming that we started picking up that following in, in other Pacific countries. And I was so grateful. And I thought, you know, it's the basics. Our systems are similar everywhere. And yeah. it's the basics of going through the process that people are um, unaware of. And it's simple things. So. It was very important for me to do that. Yeah. And meanwhile, your ex-partner was doing all he could to delay the process, um, even to the point of complaining because you had a female judge uh, complaining that there yeah. were too many females on the case. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did he win that battle? No. So, you know, they, they, that, that, um, they moved a motion and had so many different applications and that was just one of them. So... There were actually people snickering in the courtroom, um, you know, because they couldn't believe what they were hearing. And we were just regular everyday court users. Nobody in there outside of the legal councils had any uh, expertise in law, but that's how ridiculous it got. And so, you know, they played tag team defense counsel and the defendant would play tag team. So one day he would turn up, the next day he wouldn't, and just the counsel would turn up and, and there wasn't anything I could do. And it was, wasn't was frustrating for me because I had already set my mindset to the mode where every time I go to court, I will learn something new and I will share it. So that's why I'm here. So you can pull all your stunts you want. I am not going anywhere. I was fortunate to have a, an understanding employee and they supported in getting me to and from court safely. And so even when you had all the relatives and one talk sitting outside in the car park at every, any opportunity they had just to harass, threaten and intimidate me, I would just wait inside until my security picked me up and then go back to the office. But they tried everything, were, everything imaginable. Yes, that's what they do. Were, did you ever receive pressure from family or friends just to oh, leave it, it's too much hassle or don't worry about it? Or what, what was your support group like? So as long as I had the support from my parents, it was irrelevant what any other family yeah. thought. Um, yeah. I'd ha I have lost family and friends along the way, and that's okay for me. They've been replaced with more genuine people, and that, that's I, I, the cause is bigger than me in this case. And there are people that need the help. So it's not about me. But my support network was amazing um, from complete strangers and just people, my media network. It was important also knowing that I am a public figure. I needed to use my voice because the biggest, um, you know, percentage of victims are not in the rural areas. They're sitting in corporate jobs. They're educated women. They're professional women. 
and they sit there and they hide this because of multiple reasons. You know, family pressure, shame, embarrassment. And so for me, it's okay. Yes, you. I am someone you may have seen on TV, but I'm a human being. Uh, my life matters too. And so it's nothing to be embarrassed about. And I think that's, I, I always advocate and ask my um, fellow working professionals, you know, if we don't speak out, how are we going to allow the others to be able to show them that they can use their voice too, especially our, our daughters? You know, and that's the only way we'll see change if we can break that silence and the fear of our family because family plays such a powerful part in silencing victims um, and just breaking the shame. Like, why should you be yeah. shamed? It, it's him. It's yeah. him who has done the evil acts. You're, you're an innocent victim fighting for justice. So well done. Um, so finally, in May 23 um, this year, he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Um but a suspended sentence where he could be out in five to six years. And he's appealing too, is that correct? Yes, so he is appealing the sentence. Um, I'm, I'm very disappointed. I feel like to, to get a suspension of that magnitude, mm. I, in essence, wasted five years of my life doing the right thing, being a law-abiding citizen, following the process and the system then just gives this guy a get out of jail card free. It's it's there, it's there. He has the right to appeal. So let him appeal it. Yeah. But give him the full sentence. I already carry the um the weight of, you know, having to prove that all of this was done. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's that's um I feel like that's just extending the trauma and re-traumatizing me again because he's going to be out. That means my victim impact statement has had no effect in your in your sentence when it very clearly states. And it, it also brought me to question the probation office. So I've gone back to the court to ask when the probation office comes into this stage of the process and they are required to do this specific interview with myself and the prisoner separately, and does this report that goes to the judge, I want to know who independently verifies this report because I read it and it was very biased and there are untruths in it. So this, or does this officer's report just get accepted because he swore to tell the truth when he took up his job because that's not working and that's not right. It's basically a glorified CV that went to the judge and had character references from other elites, and you're basing that. It's called domestic violence for a reason. It happens in a domestic place, not in the workplace, not in front of your colleagues, all these elites that you're going to get these references from. So that doesn't make sense to me. So I've reached out to the um, Constitutional Law Reform Commission as well to ask them about it. How do we go about and change this? How do you at least change that bit so that I know that any document that has gone to the judge is fair and has been scrutinised and verified. Absolutely, yeah. Has the government taken notice of your case and have has anything been changed as a result? Yes, they have taken notice of it. Nothing has changed. What I am wanting to push with this case is tweak those little bits of, of um, the process where we can, and ultimately, my end goal is wanting to push for this separate human rights track because the process is just too long. Any Melanesian woman, any woman in the world will tell you when you're trying to go to court 
and especially with the pressure we have with our cultures, you're, you're automatically at risk. So give her the witness protection when she lays a complaint. Those are simple things that we can already do. But if we cut down that, that court time and she's guaranteed that protection, automatically you will have women who will not drop the case. And yeah. I think another important thing I learned along the way was knowing the different options. I found out halfway through about civil court through um, a pro professor in law who had shared something on Facebook. So I started researching it. And, you know, I think if more professional women understood that you can go to civil court to fight for um, damages and compensation, we would have more women just opting to do that and walk away without a long drawn out court battle. Whereas right now the messaging in Papua New Guinea is, you know, from the top down is basically don't accept any form of compensation, just fight for justice. Mm. Yes, but each case is very different also. And mm. so if some woman has been sitting in an abusive and battered relationship for 20 years and just wants out, but wants him to, you know, fulfill his parental obligations, then she should go to civil court. But nobody explains what all the dif different options are. So when I went back to state prosecutors and asked, why didn't anyone tell me I could go to civil court? Oh, that's not our area of expertise. Okay, so where do I go? Who do I talk to if I want to find out? Because there are there are every day I can be I would be sitting in the courtroom for my hearing and I get messages. So I'm sitting there having to reply quickly to people to help them because some women are like, okay, I don't know what to do. Those few minutes that a woman takes to find the courage to step out, sometimes she will never find that again for a long time. And so it's critical to me to always be ready with information to give so that they can help themselves quickly because the system, no one's going to fly in and save us. We have to learn to save ourselves. And maybe I'm biased, but, you know, information is power. And when women and men also, when people have the right information, they will know what to do to quickly help their situation Absolutely. before any police officer get to them or anything. I mean, you can so understand why the average woman would just never bother. I mean, you know, here you are, a woman, position in power, who's um, been given a voice. You've got good parental support that you've had over you. Uh, the average woman up in the village or highlands is just not going to know what to do or where to go, and so they just get away with it, don't they? What would you say to those women? Because um, there's, you know, uh, thousands, hundreds and thousands of out there. What, what would you say to them to begin a process of, of justice? I think the first thing is reach out and ask for help, no matter how futile you think the situation is and mm -hmm. you don't have an immediate support network. You find that all it takes, just one person, and that is a little weight off your shoulder mm -hmm. and it's a little sliver of hope and you have to hold on to it. And your decision can determine whether you stay alive or not. I can't save everybody. I haven't been able to. I have worked some women who um, have opted to stay in the relationship. So I just keep checking in on them and feeding the information I want her to have to empower herself to understand her rights. Yes, you can stay in it, but this is how you protect yourself. I'm always, um, I always remember something the Metropolitan Superintendent told me on that day I sat before him because my complaint was laid but I was unconscious, so my family had family member had laid it. When I regained consciousness two days later and hadn't heard from the police, that's when I was angry. 
why hasn't anyone called me to get my statement or to call me in for an interview? So I marched down to another police station and um, I had known this guy before through media work. So I said, did you not believe that there was a complaint laid? Well, I'm here now, so you can look at my face and this is it. What do I do? What happens? You tell us women to come to the police. So when it's reported, why haven't you done anything? I want not leaving until something's done. So he was able to have the case transferred and um, immediately assigned uh, invest an inspector to um, assist me. And he said, you realize it's going to go public. And I opened up Facebook and showed him my phone and said, I made it public before I walked in here. So if you scroll through, police ministers responded as well. I'm not okay with this. Mm. So can you guys do your job? And I'm going to do mine. And that is, I'm going to document everything. So everything that happens here today is going out there and will continue to be out there. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I'm not sure again, because I've spent so much time in Fiji. I've only been to PNG once, but in Fiji, they have a bit of a, a cultural um, ceremony between the families and where they just come and they forgive one another. The victim has to forgive the perpetrator and then that kind of apparently fixes it all and the perpetrator continues to run free and do what he wants in the village. Is um, And so, as I mean, forgiveness somewhere, I mean, that's, you know, that's up to the individual. Um, but justice to me is... Um, you know, forgiveness without justice is not right um, and God is a God of justice. And as a pastor, I would say, um, you know, because quite often the church has been responsible for giving really bad advice, just go home, forgive him, submit to him, talk less, you know, if you respected him more, why did he do this? The things I've heard, especially in the Pacific church, are atrocious, evil <laughs> Is that something that you have to battle with um, in your culture as well? Oh, definitely. So one of the biggest issues in Papua New Guinea is compensation. Mm. So a lot of things are settled because the family will just pay for yeah. the shame or the problems. And, and um, so we have you have the village court magistrates, then you have the committal court, the national court. And at village court, who I believe are the most effective, you know, these are very, they are very fully funded, this entire system and network. But because they are there in the communities, um, a lot of the times they will also push for the mediation first. And I think if they were better trained and better funded and supported, they could play a very pivotal role in addressing this because very few cases will get up to committal and then eventually get to national court. And we can start working on that at that level. But that's exactly it, which is which came back to my queries to the system is, you know, yeah, we don't want compensation. We want justice. And I did get asked that, you know, if you're a God-fearing woman, why don't you just forgive him? Oh, I did. The day I decided I was going to fight for justice, I forgave him and I left it there. And now I have a right to protect myself and protect my rights. And God will judge him in the end. That's not for me to do. But these are my rights and I am going to do. I'm going to exhaust every right I have until I'm satisfied, Absolutely. whatever that looks like. And it's not revenge, uh, it's justice. I think we need to understand yeah. that as well, um, the importance of justice. When it's, you know, when we do something wrong, there must be consequences. <laughs> and and to not have consequences um, perpetuates the issue. So well done. Uh, our time is 
almost up. But, you know, for women who are currently who are watching this and, and uh, I know a lot of Fijian women will, women across the Pacific will see this interview, uh, what encouragement? They might just feel like they've given up. This is their lot in life. What encouragement would you love to leave them with today? Wherever you are in the Pacific, if you need anything, find me and reach out and I can answer as many questions as you want. Our systems are all similar. Our cultures are all similar. And you are a woman of value and worth. Your life matters, your future matters, and it's only God that knows your purpose. The day I discovered my purpose was the day I got raped. And as he was driving me back to town, it had happened up at Owa's Corner. And it just hit me, a light bulb went off. There's a reason you're in media. There's a reason you have had this path and this journey. And a voice told me you are going to survive because you are going to use your story to help other people. And so this year I smashed another milestone. I walked Kapoda Trail because I wanted to build new memories around Owa's Corner because I am not going to look at that place as, oh, that's where I got raped. No, that's where I smashed this journey. And I will tell my story. And your story is important as well. And so don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. Know your worth, know that you have a purpose and know that you are loved and appreciated. Even if we don't know each other yet, I am more than happy to answer any questions and um, help with any kind of support if you need it. So thank you so much for the opportunity to share. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Hannah, for your courage and speaking up. And uh, my prayer is that we can really see a dent in this um, awful issue in our lifetime. So God bless you. Thank you so much. I see your suffering, I see the pain beneath that bowl of smile. Come out from hiding, the sun is rising. Let the islands hear reason. Let